I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I am with Baron Murphy of Torvine, who is much better known as Paul Murphy, the former Labour MP for Torvine, and an ex Secretary of State for Wales and of Northern Ireland. You live in Cumbran now, or Clantarnham, very close to Cumbran, part of Cumbran, really. This is really your neck of the woods, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Clantarnham is the bottom of the Eastern Valley. And when you come to it, of course, you don't necessarily think you're in a valley. But as you go further up towards Pontypool and Blenhaven, and to Abersuckham, which is between the two where I came from, it's a, it's a typical Welsh um, industrial valley. Clantarnham isn't. But I've lived all my life either here in Lantanum or in Abersuckham, um, where my family roots lie. And my, as you can imagine with my name, my ancestors came from Ireland. They came from County Cork um, in about 1865, I think, to work in the iron industry. And people often forget, of course, that our valleys really started with iron rather than with coal. And so that's that side of the family. On the other side, my mother's family all came from Somerset and Gloucestershire, and they worked in the coal industry, although they came a little bit earlier, in the 1840s. So my roots go back an awful long way to um, Ireland and Somerset, but essentially to the eastern valley of Monmouthshire, as it then was, um, and to Torvine, as it now is. My home. I wasn't actually born here. I was born in a nursing home just outside Usk, which was called Kevin Isla. I almost didn't make it because I was severely premature, and indeed I was kept into the, in this uh, nursing home for quite a long time. My father was a coal miner, had to walk 10 miles each way from Abersuckham to this um, maternity home to see my mother. So it was an unusual and rather interesting start to the world. But you had the good fortune to go to a very good school, I think, didn't you, Paul? Yeah, I went first of all to the local Catholic primary school, St Francis, uh, and uh, obviously uh, with a big Irish ancestry. I'd come from a Catholic family, although my mother was an Anglican. And I then went to a school called Westmon, as we colloquially call it, Jones's West Monmouth School, a haberdasher school in Pontypool, then a boys' grammar school, um, and a school with a great record. And I think it really shaped me to a very large extent because my particular interest was history, led to politics, and my history teacher was um, a chap called Ken Roderick, who's still alive, very much alive and kicking in his late 80s, who himself was from Abersuckham, had gone to Westmont, had gone to Oxford and come back and taught in the same school. And he then inspired me to apply for Oxford and to read history, but also to do history and politics as A-levels in the school itself. I wasn't very good at rugby. In fact, I was pretty awful at it. Not so bad uh, at cricket. But essentially, um, my academic like if you like, was centred on that school, which was a great academic school and sent lots of boys to Oxford and Cambridge in its day. What was it that drew you to history, do you think? I don't really know, because I, I was interested in it from primary school age, really. Like a lot of boys and girls in the valleys, we didn't have many books in our houses, and so we went to the local library. And I'm a great passion, passionate supporter of libraries, because I think they do... Uh, an awful lot of good for people, particularly in areas which are more deprived and where people don't, frankly, have the books to read. 
don't read them in the same way as we, you and I did all those years ago. But it was starting to read um, from about eight or nine history books for youngsters, obviously in that case, films, and it just developed. I just was fascinated with the past. And that history, of course, led also to an interest in, in politics too. Eventually, I not only read history at Oxford, but I taught it. I taught it at Evervale College for 17 years before I entered the House of Commons in 1987. Which was your favourite period of history? The uh, last 120 years, roughly. And I specialised in modern British and European history, so old now that it ended in 1939. goes on well beyond that now. Um, but that's um, what I did. And in Oxford, some of the finest history teachers of the day, A.J.P. Taylor was the great lecturer I used to go and listen to, Hugh Trevor Roper, and lots of others as well. And so the interest in history is accompanied by the history in politics as, as well. Was your family a political family? My father was a trade unionist, first with the South Wales Miners Federation and then the NUM and then eventually the Transport and General Workers Union in the great BNS factory, ICI Fibres in Pontypool, which in its day employed over 8,000 people. He was a shop steward and he was a great, and became a member of the Labour Party, with a great interest in um, politics. One of those people who would, in our day, undoubtedly gone to university, never had the chance had to go undergo when he was 14. He was a poet, uh, he wrote, he was interested in politics and history, and that, I suppose, rubbed off on me as well. How old were you when you joined the Labour Party? I was 15, 1964. I might have been a bit under, I may have cheated, can't quite remember. Um, but certainly 64 was the first membership card I had. That was the year that Harold Wilson won the election? He was, I can remember going to Cardiff. And listening in the Sapphire Gardens to Harold Wilson, giving a great speech with George Thomas, probably, Jim Callaghan, certainly, um, who were then the local MPs for Cardiff, local Labour MPs. And that was my first encounter with any leader of the Labour Party. But of course, all politics is local. I joined the Labour Party in Abbasak and became chairman of the branch, or the ward, as it called in those days, when I was 16. And Don Tewitt, who became an MP and a peer, was the secretary. We joined the Labour Party on the same day. Was uh, political oratory better than it is now? Oh, unquestionably. When you look back and think in terms of uh, the people, I would look on the screen, the monitor in the House of Commons, and whatever I was doing, if a certain person was speaking, I'd be there in the chamber listening. Michael Foote, Dennis Healy on the Labour side, and... Mrs Thatcher, on the Tory side, didn't like her views, but I'd go and listen to her. And yes, it, it was. Perhaps it's because I'm older, but I do actually think that the art of oratory was different. Um, they had to speak in public meetings, which people rarely do these days. They had to speak to thousands of people, which people never do these days. And the art, I suppose, of oratory has been taken over by the art of being on television and radio. Um, now, if you look back at early recordings of some famous politicians, go back to Atkins, he was never a great orator, but they're really uncomfortable doing media on television and radio. Their appropriate um, medium would have been the public meeting or the Chamber of the House of Commons. So I do think, actually, that, that it is changed, has changed, not necessarily for the best. And I'm not quite sure 
who I'd give my dinner up if I was looking at the screen and saying, who am I going to go and listen to now in either chamber in the house? There's a lot of technocratic stuff, isn't there? And a lot of politicians, even very senior politicians, seem to read their speeches now. Yes, and I think that's um, uh, something which is to be deplored, to be honest. Technically, of course, in both houses, about both houses, you're not supposed to. You, you, you can use them as an aid memoir, as they call, but you're not supposed to read word for word. Ministers almost invariably all do it because their civil servants write for them. I tried not to when I was a minister because I just, I'm not comfortable with reading a speech. It's like reading an essay. You better off being imperfect in the speech and not reading it because there's a spontaneity which has gone out of it now. I don't know why. Um, perhaps it's just not taught anymore or simply that people have so many researchers and people like that working for them that they expect people to write the speeches and then they deliver it in this deadpan manner. Mm -hmm. Not very good. So, in a sense, you had uh, sort of parallel uh, lives for a period where you were a lecturer in history, but also you had political interests. At what time did they come together in the sense that you thought, I would really like to be an MP? Well, I'd say certainly in my late teens, because I'd become by then so fascinated in um, modern history and in contemporary politics that I thought I wouldn't mind doing what the people I admired, my heroes, if you like, not saying I'd want to be in the cabinet, but I'm saying I wouldn't mind being in the, in the House of Commons. And so from a pretty early age, to be honest, obviously I couldn't do anything until I was of age, till I was over 21. And I started thinking about entering uh, parliamentary politics in my mid-twenties, I suppose. Um, I tried unsuccessfully for a number of seats, uh, and then eventually got selected for a Conservative seat in the West Country, Wells in Somerset, very big Tory majority. Uh, but, it, but it was a great experience for the 79 election, when everybody liked Mr Callaghan but didn't want to vote for him, and ended up with, of course, voting for Mrs Thatcher. But it was a great experience, a constituency of 500 square miles, split up now, Glastonbury, Wells Street, all that sort of area. But it gave me an apprenticeship. Um, and from then on, I uh, continued to um, think about a parliamentary career. And in the end, of course, um, my predecessor, the great Leo Absey, the great social reformer, decided at the age of 70 to retire for the Torvine seat. And obviously I applied for it and was lucky enough to get it. When you became an MP, how did you envisage your career panning out? I didn't really. In fact, I said to my selection conference that I would be perfectly happy I were I to be elected, and I suppose there was an awful lot of doubt that the good people of Torbine would select a Labour candidate, elect a Labour candidate to Parliament, that I would be more than happy to represent them as a constituency member of Parliament. I'd obviously specialise in different things, as it turned out, constitutional issues, amongst others, but I didn't really envisage a ministerial career. It just happened. Luck plays a huge part in all this. Um, when I entered the House in 87, there were a large number of Labour MPs on the verge of retirement who uh, had never really had the opportunity to become uh, ministers because we'd been out of office for so long. And so there were quite a lot of vacancies for front bench positions on the opposition front bench. And so it was much easier then than it became later uh, to be picked, in this case by Neil Kinnock, Become a shadow Welsh office spokesman and then eventually Northern Ireland Defence and Foreign Affairs until he came into government. But I didn't plan it. 
Um, I think some people should remember the famous Michael Hesertine planning that he do such and such and such and such and such and such and then become prime minister. He almost made it, of course, became deputy. I never thought of it quite like that. Not at all like that, but it just happened. And in terms of the difference between being a backbencher and being a minister, as a politician, to what extent is that a huge difference? Um, pretty big, in terms of the commitment that you've got. I, I only served just over a year in opposition as a backbencher, but of course it is different, uh, because you're in a sort of no-man's land as a shadow minister. You, you are both a backbencher, and indeed can sometimes speak from the backbenches on different subjects other than the ones you're a frontbencher from, than being a real minister. But being a real minister is the difference between that and a backbencher. You're completely confined, of course, to speaking on your subject. You're not allowed to speak in any other capacity in the House of Commons. And, of course, you don't have the time to speak either because you've got a job to do. Um, and it is very, very different. And I suppose 25 years I was on the front bench in one form or another. So it became quite unusual when I left the front bench to readjust to becoming a backbencher. I hadn't, for example... Uh, when I left the front bench in 2005, that's before I came, Ralph Secretary, two years later, I hadn't asked a question for over a decade, because you weren't allowed to. And so it was an unusual experience for me. And I had to get different people in coming to work with me, because I didn't need them when I was a minister. Uh, you, you had the civil service working for you in that case. In terms of the relationship between you as a minister and the civil servants, how did that work? Because, of course, there are lots of people who think... Uh, and I'm sure it is the case in some instances that ministers are very much, shall we say... Transitory. Transitory, and therefore they are sometimes... It can even be said that they're controlled by the civil servants to a degree. And you could be. I mean, for example, your diary could be completely in the hands of the, of the civil service and uh, you could go around opening things and making speeches all the time. It's up to you, really. And Gerald Kaufman, the late Gerald Kaufman, wrote a great book now to be a minister... And I read it twice before I became one. And the first thing he said to me is, control your diary. And so that you allowed no one, but no one, even though you had a diary secretary, uh, to decide what to do unless you decided to do it. And that sent a message uh, that, you know, he, not that you were the boss, because it's a transitory job and these people are there all the time and they're usually pretty good. Um, and you eventually will go off somewhere else. But rather to know that you've been elected to do a job for the party you're you know, you a member of and the government you're a member of. I was blessed, I think, with some very good civil servants. I started off as Minister of State in Northern Ireland with, I think, probably some of the finest brains in the British civil service who were, who were actually sent, inevitably, to Northern Ireland to try and ensure that we got ourselves out of the terrible mess that we were in for 30 years there. And then when, and, but strangely, when I came to Wales, I had a much, although good civil servants, I had a much reduced uh, number of civil servants because devolution had happened. And so in both cases, it, it, was, it was quite unusual. On the one hand, because of Northern Ireland, you're away from the mainstream of politics, but you've got very, very clever people advising you. And on the other, most of them had gone to the uh, Welsh Assembly government by then. Now we're uh, getting to the point now where we need to mention your book because you've uh, just written a book uh, which is called Peacemaker, which um, I haven't had the opportunity to read yet, but I'm looking forward to doing so very much. And from the title, it is clear that um, a major theme of the book is the work that you did uh, as 
initially the um, Minister of State at the Northern Ireland office uh, where you were serving under Mo Molum and subsequently as a Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. Um, I knew Mo Molum slightly actually because I used to work uh, up in the northeast of England and um, Mo, of course, was um, was a red car MP, and I always found her a deeply impressive person, I have to say. But coming at that time into office in 1997, of course, there was a huge challenge, wasn't there, to try to sort out this problem, which had been going on for such a long time. Why did you, or how did you come to be involved in all that, Paul? Well, I'd been a shadow Northern Ireland Minister for two years nearly, no less than that, just over a year. And what had happened was that Mo Molan, with whom I was very friendly, had asked Tony Blair if she could have me as a deputy in um, whenever he came into office, 94, 95. And I remember getting a phone call from Mo and she said that Tony's going to phone you and ask you to become the deputy to me in Northern Ireland, which immediately attracted me, but I said, before I do that, I've got to phone my dad, see what he says. I take no major political decision, I'd ask my dad, and he said, go ahead with it. So I did, and I accepted, and uh, then spent just over a year, I think, with Mo as the shadow minister, and of course got to know the problems, got to know the place, got to know the players, and oddly enough, very peculiarly, just before the 1997 general election, when I was a shadow Navy minister, believe it or not, didn't know much about navies to be honest, but I was a shadow Navy minister, I was approached by um, Jonathan Powell, who was the uh, chief of staff of Tony Blair, that in the event of a Labour government, it was quite likely that I might go back to Northern Ireland. And so, although I was dealing with ships, I was going back and forth to Northern Ireland and talking to the major political players who were a bit bemused by the fact that the shadow minister of the Navy was talking to Sinn Féin and the DUP and all the rest of them. So when it came about in 97, it wasn't a complete surprise, and I went as most deputy, and as the talks minister, uh, so literally, although in Bina Island, of course, we tend to be the, the listening minister, because they do a lot of talking, and didn't they talk, uh, but they talk well. And in the end, of course, did it. But working with Mo was absolutely unbelievably good. By then, she'd been um, diagnosed with a brain tumour, which related to was not benign, which we thought it was at the time, but she had a radiotherapy, which meant she'd lost all her hair. Mm. And that, that meant that occasionally, if she got upset with people, off would come the wake and would go on the table and um, totally disarm them. But she was an amazing person to work with. She left a lot of the detail to me, and she dealt with the bigger pictures, if you like, and I dealt with the, the considerable detail that you have to deal with in the talks process at the time, and with both sides, of course. Because in any uh, conflict resolution, you can't just talk to one side, you've got to talk to both of them. And the irony was that here I was the Catholic, having to talk to the Unionist Protestant side, and perhaps more than with the Catholic side, because Mo tended to associate herself sometimes with the sort of nationalist side of things, although she understood the reason to want both. But I was the one, for example, who would talk to David Trimble and Ian Paisley, perhaps more than she did. How did, you manage, how did you manage to gain their confidence? Um, we have to trust people, basically, at the end of the day, and they have to trust you. If you lose the trust, if, if you say something and don't do it, or you betray the trust in some way or another, you finish. And so it was a difficult um, job not to be trustworthy, but it was difficult to tread that line of being absolutely neutral 
on the issues in front of us. Even though I wouldn't agree, perhaps, in my own mind with what people were saying, I had to be completely the referee in all this. And by being as fair as you can and listening to both sides and constantly, constantly listen to them, occasionally drinking with them as well, this is Ireland after all, then it, um, it meant that you, you would gain their confidence. For instance, in David Trimble's case, you have to deal with some very tricky issues. And very often, because he and I both like classical music, we'd break off in the middle of the talks and go out for half an hour and talk about what latest compact disc we bought, for instance. Things like that humanised it. Um, and so you had to actually make friends with people, which wasn't difficult, frankly, in, in, in Northern Ireland, because even though they'd been doing terrible things to each other for 30 years, they are essentially very friendly people. And in terms of the Republicans, I mean, clearly uh, they had been involved in terrorist activity. What approach did you adopt, Paul, when you found yourself in a position of having to deal with people who had been involved in doing some pretty terrible things? I mean, was that easy to cope with or did you have to adopt some sort of um, strategy in order to be able to um, move things forward? Very good question, actually, because it can be very... If you think about it too much, it could be very unnerving. But you have constantly to think of the big picture. Everybody, this is always what we were told and we told other people, whatever the details of individuals or events that you were dealing with, remember what you were doing there. The big picture is to make the peace. And on one occasion, for example, I remember being in a meeting, I looked around the meeting, and I was the only person who hadn't murdered anybody in the meeting. Um, and it was... And I thought about that for a second, then took it out of my head. And I had to forget it. And you knew you were dealing with some pretty rum characters at times there, from both sides, loyalist and Republican. But you have to understand that because they were talking to you, they, they were changing too. That they realised that the only way you could actually end up with a solution to this is to give up the violence and have some sort of political settlement. Um, and so as long as you kept thinking that, um, but it's not easy. To do that, I remember, for example, in, in the talks, I was chairing a particular talks uh, one day, and I looked across, and Seamus Mallon, who was the deputy leader of the SDLP, was sitting next to somebody from a loyalist party. And the person with whom he shared a desk, so to speak, or a table in the talks, and for many, two years he had done this, the person had murdered his best friend and been put into prison for a long time for it, let out, and then reformed himself. But it was a very difficult thing to do. You know, for though it's, so I thought to myself, if they can do it, I'm sure I can do it, and try and uh, forget all that, put it to the past, and keep looking with the big picture. Of course, as a consequence of the work that you did, um, in fact, there was a settlement. There was a Good Friday Agreement, which meant that violence was a thing of the past. And then, of course, there was a power-sharing arrangement that yeah. came into existence. How easy was it to drill down into the detail, as it were, and get the two sides to agree that the the right kind of balance had been arrived at in the proposals that were adopted? Well, it wasn't easy, of course, and um, it took two prime ministers and a couple of American presidents, as well as all the rest of us, to resolve all this. But the key to it was that the talk process was a structured 24-hour-a-day process. I've been lucky enough to go around to other countries in the world, talking about Northern Ireland. And I tell them, you can't make peace part-time. You've got to spend all your time at it. And so they'd actually get elected politicians in Northern Ireland to be the negotiators on behalf of the parties. And they were full-time paid people. 
and spent their entire time, as I did and others did, um, in dealing with all these issues. And yes, you have to deal with enormous detail, enormous detail, because they, obviously, you'd agree on A for one side, but A for the one side would be anathema to the people on the other side, and suddenly or other you had to get to a B which both could agree on. And that wasn't easy, but we had a great chairman overall in George Mitchell. And we had two Prime Ministers who were absolutely committed to it. Bertie Hearn from Ireland and of course Tony Blair from United Kingdom, who lived there. And one of, frankly, one of the unfortunate aspects of the last few years when we've seen the demise of the Assembly and the government is that neither the Irish nor the British government, frankly, have given enough time either through ministerial and prime ministerial involvement or whatever than they had in the past. They've had Brexit, of course, to deal with, and that's not easy, and it affects the Northern Ireland process. But if you contrast what hasn't happened in the last number of years with what happened 20 years ago, you suddenly realise you've got to work at this full-time. Because obviously there was a huge transition for these people to make, the yeah. ones who had been involved in the terrorist activity. There's quite a big difference between being a leading member of a terrorist organisation and actually being a government minister. But if we take Martin McGuinness, he made the transition very well, I think, didn't he? Martin is the best example you could have chosen. A number of ministers who weren't uh, as elevated he was, he was the Deputy First Minister and before that Minister of Education, who really did extremely well. The Loyalist side never really had sufficient members of the Assembly in order to become ministers. So you never really had somebody like David Irving, who was uh, fascinating and good man who'd been um, a loyalist politician, died young. So the only thing we can look at is what happened to people who'd been involved in the Republican movement and eventually became ministers. And Martin McGuinness is the best example of them all. And he was a very fine minister. I believe that were he alive today, then we probably would have had a settlement by now in Northern Ireland because he was pragmatic. He came from a very, very different background from any other politician I ever knew. And in fact, when I was a young man looking at the television and seeing him, I found him to be quite a forbidding person to look at and to listen to. And I couldn't empathise at all. But having met him in 1994-97, but afterwards, and then worked with him on a daily basis, I totally changed my mind. I believe he was absolutely committed to what he was doing. And um, he also enjoyed doing it. He enjoyed being a minister. And I, I, I guess that had Martin uh, McGuinness lived in Britain, he would have become probably a Labour Party politician who would have made the government. I only met him once, and that was a couple of months before he died. Oh, and um, there was one of these British-Irish Council meetings that uh, had taken place, and uh, it was in a, uh, the hotel in the Valley Glamorgan. And then there was a press conference, and James Brokenshire was the uh -huh. Secretary of State for Northern Ireland at the time. And we were well into Brexit um, mode uh, at that time. And I asked him a question about the single market. And Martin McGuinness then caught my eye and obviously liked the fact that I was challenging Tory minister about the dangers that could arise out of being out of the single market and the potential danger to the Good Friday Agreement. And then after the press conference broke up, he came and sought me out to have a chat. And I found that very impressive, actually. 
Um, and he was clearly a man who, um, whatever he may have done in the past, was wholly committed to wanting the prosperity of his people. That's the conclusion that I came to. And it's the same conclusion I came to. But it's interesting that you came to it in a different route, and you were able to make your mind up dispassionately about that, because we'd all had a predisposition towards Martin when he was doing other things um, many years ago. But he was that. For example, on the Brexit stuff, he and Arlene Foster, way back now, about three or four years ago, actually had issued a joint letter saying they'd work as best they could together to ensure that whatever happened to Brexit, it wouldn't affect adversely Northern Ireland. It wasn't to be in the end of the day. But he was good. And very often, and he had a good sense of humour as well. I remember once um, saying to him that I was off to Derry, stroke London Derry, the following day for the visit, and he said, good Paul, he said, I'll make sure the boys are called off. <laughs> and uh, I got this safely in the end. But he would, he, he would crack a joke. Um, he spent an hour talking to you, like you and I are talking now, um, about all sorts of things, which wasn't the case with lots of politicians, but in his case it was. And I think Noel Riley misses him a lot. And of course the famous chuckle twins with him and Ian Paisley. Who in that the was many years would have ever have thought that was going to happen? Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness laughing together and running the show in Northern Ireland. How did that become possible? Well, because the DUP as well um, changed their minds about what to do. Um, decommission had happened with the IRA and there's a huge amount of work to be done and the DUP party itself was changing. They'd become by now the big unionist party in Northern Ireland. And so they, they in the end of the day, realised they, they're never going to be in power under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement unless they worked in a power-sharing agreement. They did, and it worked well for a time. So, obviously, your involvement finished quite a while ago now. Yeah. All these years later, how secure do you think the settlement that you were intimately involved with is? Well... I was, I'm still involved in the sense of, um, I'm on what they call the British-Irish Parliamentary Assembly, which brings together politicians in Ireland, North and South, and the UK and Wales, the Welsh Assembly as well. So I do take a keen interest in it, and it is disappointing at the moment, to say the very least. No return to the bad old days, I haven't got the slightest doubt about that. There have been examples of murders and dissident Republican and sometimes loyalist activity. And that's not going to stop completely, I suppose. But I don't think there's any real danger of violence. Although when there's a political vacuum, it can sometimes be filled by it. And that's the danger of over three years now of having no institutions in Northern Ireland. I'm deeply disappointed, almost to the point of distress about what happened um, over the last couple of years because of what we had done 20 years ago. I went back last year to... Belfast with George Mitchell and lots of other people who were involved in the Good Friday Agreement. And people were in despair that they, you know, the terms of the agreement were only partly being dealt with now. It's the only part of Europe which isn't really democratically governed now. Because half the MPs don't turn up in Westminster. They have no assembly. The only people actually involved in doing anything are local councillors, which have a much lesser role in Northern Ireland than they do in the United Kingdom. So it is... Very, very disappointing. Next year, in January, there's a window of four weeks before an election has to be called in Northern Ireland for the Assembly. I only hope that they'll be able to resolve something and move back into government, and whatever difficulties they've got, they can deal with. None of them were as difficult as the difficulties we had when we made the Good Friday Agreement.
Paul Murphy, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. Thank you.